Well, anyways, uh, I want to thank uh, Shane for doing an excellent job last week, reminding us about our life uh, in Christ. And so thank you, Shane. That was great. Uh, gave uh, me a chance to, uh, Shelly and I got a chance to be out in California for a little bit. Um, I did a conference out there uh, at the Roberto uh, Winter Institute, and it was just really a great time take, teaching on the warfare worldview, and had a lot of people from around the country just coming in. Um, man, revolutionaries all over the place. Talked to some really incredible folks who are just waking up to the Jesus-looking kingdom and Jesus-looking God and understanding warfare, and it's exciting stuff hearing some of their stories. Um, the bad part was, if there was a bad part, but I leave here at seven inches of snow. It just snows seven inches, right? This isn't actually May 5th. This is February 87th, okay? Uh, we, we just have missed spring. So um, leave this snow. I think, oh, hallelujah, we're leaving the snow. Get over to California. You guys go up to 75. They go down to 65. And that's how it stays the whole time I'm out there. What's with that? It's like, uh, why, God? The weather's all about me, you know. It's, it's, it's all... So uh, anyway, but we did have a good time just uh, hanging out at Venice Beach. Um, I don't care what the temperature is. That's always an interesting place. I get a lot of very, very cool people out there. Uh, it's just, I, got, I jumped in a couple of conga groups that were there and uh, uh, then did a little dance thing, made a fool out of myself with some people. Oh, it's, you know, in fact, it's really kind of hard to make a fool out of yourself at Venice Beach. Uh, it's... <laughs> No matter what you do, you're not going to stand out. But it was just a really good, relaxing time and just really enjoyed it. But it's good to be back. And we are in the book of Colossians, streaming through this book uh, at lightning speed. So we're up to Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Uh, now what we've seen so far is that, as we're studying verse 12, um, and really it goes back to verse 1, is that um, we are chosen in fact, when Jesus died on the cross, as all were in Adam, all are in Christ. And God creates this new reality that we access through faith. And so you are already chosen, you're already uh, beloved, you're already holy. And then Paul says, because that is true, therefore, put on, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. It's not that in doing those things, we're acquiring something new. We're not like achieving something. We're not becoming something that we're not. That's the psychology of the world. But in the kingdom, rather, what we're doing is simply getting consistent with who we already are. God gives it all up front by grace when Jesus dies and rises from the dead. Uh, You are all you're ever going to be. When Jesus said it is finished, he said it because it was finished. And uh, there's nothing more for us to accomplish. What we do, what our part is, is simply creating congruity with reality in our mind and, th- and then in our lives. And that's what faith is. We envision faith. He- he- Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We-, we see it as a substantial reality. We imagine it. We-, we become disciplined in what we imagine, envisioning our true self and envisioning the true God. And that creates in us, it says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, a, a conviction about its truthfulness so we step into it in our lives. That's The whole of, of discipleship is right there. In a disciplined way, getting, taking every thought captive to Christ, Hebrews, or 2 Corinthians 10.5, and then in bringing every thought captive to Christ, we bring our attitudes captive to Christ, and then we bring our actions captive to Christ, and that's how we, we manifest Christ-likeness. And all of that, we're simply manifesting the truth of who we already are. It's... Uh, Cool, cool, cool stuff. So now we're up to verse 13. And here's what it says in verse 13. Listen to this. Above all. Everybody say, above all. above all. Now I'm thinking that means that nothing should be placed above this, right? 
And I'm thinking that if this is above all, it means nothing should be placed alongside of this. This trumps everything. Above all, clothe yourself with love. Put on love. And love, remember, is defined as Calvary. Uh, 1 John 3.16. Here's what love looks like. It looks like Calvary. Put on self-sacrificial love. Servant love. Humble love. Above all, the most important thing. Put on this kind of love. And that binds everything together in perfect harmony. Mm. We're going to hover on this verse for a couple weeks, I'm thinking. Just sensing it in my spirit. Um, Above all, this is what it's all about. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, uh, we come here to the command that is above all other commands, the teaching that is above all other teachings, the truth that is above all other truths. Uh, I feel a gravitas about this, but I also feel a profound lightness and joy about this. But I pray, God, for every person in this auditorium and every person listening through podcasts or television or other, uh, any other means, that you would really open up our eyes, as we just sang about, and open up our hearts, as we just sang about, to see the truth, to receive the truth, to be impacted by the truth, transformed by the truth, and therefore become conduits of transformation in this world to bring it the truth. Above all, God, create us to be a people who love like you love. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So here's the thing. Uh, we have always taught here at Woodland Hills Church that um, the most important fact in your brain is your mental picture of God, right? And that the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. We've always taught that here. Um, and so if we're going to put on love, we've got to put on, uh, in our mind, a loving picture of God. It's, it's that simple. We, we become the God that we worship. And so everything hangs upon how we envision um, God. What's our mental picture of God? What I'm going to show this morning is that that's not just a biblical truth, though that should be enough for us. But I have recently learned that it is a neurological truth. It's a scientific truth. In fact, it, it's a proven neurological fact. And uh, we're going to be talking about that here in a little bit. Um, how our, God shapes our brain in, in different ways. Neurologically, it's uh, fascinating stuff. So for those of you especially, one of the benefits of coming here to Willow Hills Church, as you know, is you don't just learn the Bible and theology, which is good enough, but you get quantum physics, you get relativity theory, and now you're getting neuroscience. I mean, this, we, we offer it all here, right? This is, this is a smart church, let me tell you. So I'm going to back into this in certain ways. I'm going to back into this. Uh, this is going to be kind of an age tester uh, as to who's over 50 and who's not. You younger folks maybe won't know what's going on. But can you recognize this little jingle? What is it? Twilight Zone! Yes, Twilight Zone. And I'm not talking about the new Twilight Zone. I'm talking about the, the, the 60s Twilight Zone. One of my fa- favorite movies I, I, or shows. I, used to, I was allowed to watch two half-hour shows um, uh, when I was growing up, and I always chose Twilight Zone as one of those shows. The other one was either The Littlest Hobo or McHale's Navy or Gilligan's Island. But always had to watch Twilight Zone. Loved it. It was just so cool. Uh, I loved uh, Rod Sterling. You remember him? He used to always come out there with that cigarette. This is before that was illegal, illegal to do that. And now I'm kind of glad because as a kid, I, he was so cool and I wanted to talk like him. He had that sexy voice and that cigarette. So I always wanted to have a cigarette. So I'm really glad we don't have that on television anymore. But as a kid, he'd always come out there like this. I never saw him. Did he ever actually puff it? I don't think so. But he'd come out there with that, that cigarette lit. And he had that kind of look. 
walking down a road, walking down a road into the desert, clear sky. But you're lost. Your car is gone. There's something strange and curious about that cactus plant over there. You've entered the twilight zone. Flick it like that. You can tell I'm a pro. So we're going to watch a little episode here of the Twilight Zone. I'm going to back into this message this way. A friend of mine, David Flowers, uh, posted an episode, a little clip of an episode on on his website, and uh, made a theological point out of it that I thought was just profound. Um, It has to do with this demented little boy named Anthony. When I saw this episode, I I remembered seeing it as a kid. scared the kajibers out of me. But uh, uh, there's this demented boy named Anthony. Now, here's what you got to know to set up this, this, this episode. Uh, this is 1962. Um, television acting was not quite yet up to snuff. Uh, they had never heard of a thing called overacting, which is why everyone did it. Um, and their animation budget was a total of like $2, as you'll see here. Animations come a long way. Uh, but having said that, and this is all in black and white, so this is about a little boy named Anthony who somehow in the Twilight Zone inherited omnipotence. He, be, he has all the power. He can do anything he wants. And here's what happens. Let's watch it. You dirty little monster. You murderer. You think about me. Go ahead, Anthony. You think bad thoughts about me. Maybe some man in this room, some man with a gut, somebody who's so sick to death of living in this kind of place and willing to take a chance, sneak up behind you and lay something heavy across your skull and end this once and for all. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. You think that? Go ahead, Anthony. I'm a very bad man. Keep thinking that. Somebody sneak up behind him. Somebody end this now. But he's thinking about me. (laughs) Won't somebody take a lamp or a bottle or something and end this? You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. And you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. Wish it into the cornfield. Please, son, wish it into the cornfield, please. a bad man, so I turned him into a jack-in-the-box. A jack-in-the-box that still had his bad face. And you mustn't think bad thoughts about me either, or I'll do the same thing to you. Play some more music. It's good what you've done to Dad. It's real good. It was swell. It was just swell. That was really good.
movies outside and and we could get real television. Things like that. Hey, Amy. It's it's real good for you to say such a thing. It's it's real good. But how can you mean it? Why? Anthony's television is much better than anything we ever used to get. Oh, yes, it's fine. Why, Anthony's television is the best television we've ever seen. It's snowing outside. Anthony, are you making it snow? Yes, I'm making it snow. Why, that'll ruin half the crops. You know that, don't you? Half of the crops. That's what that'll... Dad. But it's good that you're making it snow, Anthony. It's real good. And tomorrow, tomorrow's going to be a real good day. <laughs> Escaping the Twilight Zone God. That's the title. And there's a picture of Anthony as God up there. <laughs> you're a bad race of people. You're a very bad race of people. Ah... Uh, so uh, here these folks are trapped in this room with this demented, omnipotent boy. Which, if he was, was really all powerful, why didn't he fix his tooth? That's what I got. I can't figure that out. <laughs> and they have to say that whatever he does is good, and they're only supposed to think good thoughts about him. Here, this guy, this little kid, thinks he can command people to like him, like me, or else I'll turn you into a jack in a box. It doesn't quite work like that. And. Uh, these folks have to then say, because this is the guy who holds all the power, whatever he does, you've got to agree is good. So it's, it's good. It's, it's just swell that he turned that guy into a, a jack-in-the-box. That was a good thing. And, and it's just great that he, he has his own television set. He got rid of the regular television sets, and he's got his own kind of demented television that occurs early in the episode. It's just swell. It's just great. And if he wants to make it snow in July, even if it destroys half the crops, well, well that's just great, right? That's just good. Because if you don't agree with Anthony you might find yourself turned into a, a jack-in-the-box. The sad thing is that that is not too far from the way a lot of people think about God. This is what's sometimes referred to as a Nietzschean, Frederick Nietzsche. You've heard of him, as many of you have. Uh, this is his idea of ethics. Uh, what is good is defined by whoever holds all the power. If I'm up here and i got an Uzi... If, then whatever I say is good is good because I have the power to enforce it. Who can ever enforce their will on others, you get to define what good is. And, and Nietzsche thought that was all there was to say about good and evil. It was just a will to power. Uh, you call good whatever um, uh, the person who has the power says is good. Trouble is it puts you kind of in a conflicted situation because uh, on the one hand, you don't want to be turned into a jack-in-the-box. On the other hand, you can't genuinely believe that it's good that this guy was turned into a jack-in-the-box. You can't really believe it's good that it snows in uh, uh, July, or May for that matter, for crying out loud. What kind of a demented, demonic kid makes it snow in May, for goodness sake? But see, a lot of people have this kind of conception of God. Might is right. Might is right. And so they can believe God does horrendous things but they'll call it good because well he's god and if you don't agree with god you could find yourself getting eternally squished thrown to an eternal hell and that does stuff to your mind that does it does stuff to your your soul when you've got to call something good that you really can't believe is good i at this conference i was at had a lot of interesting discussions on a panel and some debates and, and things like this 
And one guy I was talking with, he, he held this view. I, I taught about it several months ago. But it's a particular way of reading Romans 9 where you believe that God, out of one lump of clay, just fashions some figures to be his elect figures, his special figures. And then he makes others to be uh, the damned. And then he punishes the damned figures for being the, the damned way that he made them. Damn you for being the way that I made you. And he crushes them. And in this, this theology, he crushes them eternally. Hell is eternal conscious suffering. So he does that. And then he turns to the, the, the figures that he made to be his special people. And he says, now aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? Praise me. And will you agree that that is good? That this is right. This is just. This is glorious. I can damn anyone I want to eternal hell for my glory. Do you agree that that is beautiful? And if you're one of the elect, you better say yes. Because if you say no, well, that means that you're one of the non-elect. So you say, oh, it's glorious and grand. This guy held this view. And so we're talking about it. And even apart from the exegetical interpretive issues of Romans 9, I think that Romans 9 means the opposite of that. But I asked him, I said, okay, so you're telling me then that your newborn baby, you had a new, new, new six-week-old child. So this precious baby that you love so much, that God gave you, for all you know, that baby's been created as one of the bad people, the ones that are going to be damned for all eternity. And so, are you willing to say that God is all the more loving, all the more glorious, all the more beautiful for having created your baby to go to hell for all eternity? To be fated for eternal damnation before the baby was ever born, in fact, before the world ever began. Uh, You think God's all the more glorious? And this guy said, I have to. God's God's glorious and beautiful for having damned my child to eternal suffering. The thing is, is I, the guy, he's got a sincere heart. He, he's just doing what he knows. This is all he knows, but he's, he's, he's in the twilight zone. <laughs> he's serving a twilight zone deity. His deity is this, this demented Anthony, I'm afraid. And he can say that it's all glorious, that his child is damned to hell, but he can't really believe that. He can say it's good that his child's damned to hell, but he can't really believe that. Every moral fiber of his being is wired to say that is evil. A being who do that is evil. But see, if you say that, boom, you're not one of the elect. You're on the other side. And so out of fear, out of fear, you say, oh, yes, you're all glorious for damning the majority of people to go to hell eternally for being the way that you made them. Oh, that, that's, that's, that's swell. That, that's good. That's good. But you can't really believe that. And the sad thing is that most people, to some degree, have that kind of picture of God. To some degree. At this conference I was at, I, I, I just heard story after story, dozens of stories of people. Uh, and these are folks who, who have had you know, a real encounter with uh, a different model of God, and, and that's why they came to this conference. But they told some stories that were just heartbreaking, although it was rewarding and encouraging to find that they were able to finally see a different picture of God, a, a Jesus-looking picture of God, and a different understanding of evil, that it doesn't come from God. It's part of this war zone that we're a part of. But one, one, one young lady told me about how uh, she was engaged to be married, love of her life, just, just fell deeply in love with this man. And two weeks before their wedding, he was killed in a car accident. And well-intentioned people, sincere people, good people, they mean well, they don't know any different, but they come up and they say, well, you know, God has got a different guy for you. I, I'm sure God has a different guy in store for you. And, and, and someone else will come along. And, and, and this is just part of his plan. And, and we don't understand these things. But God is all good. And, and there's a reason for it. And it's going to work out better. It's going to be beautiful. And, and it's all part of the plan. And this young lady went into a year and a half rage against God. 
asking the question, what kind of God does this, causing you to fall deeply in love with a man, only to then rip him away two weeks before you're supposed to get married? And the friends may say that that's good, but she couldn't call it good. She couldn't, she couldn't go along with that. Uh, another person has a newborn baby die. Another person told me about their 12-year-old son who died. And the stories go on and on and on. And I was just sometimes ta- sharing this with tears with these folks. But I'm so glad that they were able to discover a different way of thinking about God. Fortunately, for a lot of people, this is just, just, this is just what they have. This is, this is part of the thing. They, they, their picture of God is the God who, who paints every event in history. So this is the God who orchestrates every cancer, every disease, every illness, every debilitating thing that ever happens to people, every kidnapped child, every mutilated, sexually assaulted person on the planet, the Holocaust, Stalin's massacre, every disaster that's ever occurred. It's all part of his wonderful, glorious, harmonious plan. And you got to say it's good, it's great, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's swell. And if you don't, well then maybe that means you're not part of uh, his, his plan. You're going to be painted as one of the people who are damned eternally. But you know, it's possible. What does it do to a brain to have to say something's good that you can't genuinely believe is good? Or trying to think positive thoughts about Anthony. I want you to only think good thoughts about me, otherwise I'll turn you into a jack-in-the-box. Okay, positive thoughts, positive thoughts. But you can't be thinking positive thoughts because this Anthony is not, is not, is not good. This is bad. I, it, it, it creates an incredible conflict in a person's life. And do you think having that model of God, that model of God is conducive to living a life of Christ-like love? Paul says, above all, put on love. With that model of God, do you think that's going to... The, the influence that, that, that your picture of God has, the most important fact between your ears... Is that going to be conducive to living a Christ-like kind of love or not? And I submit to you, it's not. We've always taught that the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your conception of God. What's interesting is that now there's significant proof, scientific proof about that. Um, it has to do with neurology. So let's do a little bit of brain science. This last week I was just given this book uh, on planes. I like to read stuff that I normally wouldn't read. And uh, someone had sent me this book. And so I thought I'll just give it a read. I loved it. It's called The God-Shaped Brain by Timothy Jennings. The God-Shaped Brain. And his basic thesis here, and he shows all this. It's, a, it's an easy read. I recommend it. It's a really uh, readable book. But he brings a ton of research uh, to, to uh, uh, what he's stating here. And he makes the case that the kind of God you worship changes your brain, for better or for worse. The kind of God, the mental picture you have of God changes your brain neurologically, physically here, it changes the structure of your brain for better or for worse. And what he shows brings a ton of evidence showing that when you have a love-based model of God that empowers people, gives freedom to people, that's a real big thing for him, he calls it the liberty principle. When you have a God who's not controlling, control, he argues, and he shows this neurologically, is against our nature. We're meant to be decision makers. And when we're controlled, it's like suffocating. But when you have a fear-based control model of God, it actually damages the brain in significant ways and causes people to live a life that is more self-protective and self-promoting, self-centered. Whereas if you have a loved-based model of God who affirms people, gives freedom to people, that is healthy for the brain. It creates a healthy brain and it's conducive to moving a person, motivating a person into living a, 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 a life of empathy and altruism and compassion towards others. 
That's the case he makes. I'll flush out a little bit about, uh, about why that is so. So we're going to do a little bit of brain science here. Ready for this? Put on your brain caps. Here we go. Here's the brain. Isn't that a good-looking brain? That's what you look like. If you rip away all your skin, rip away your skull, that's what you look like right now. You're, just, you're a pulsating blob of three pounds of noodles. Here you are. Hello there, sir. Uh, and there's three parts of the brain you got to know about uh, for this lesson this morning. Uh, there's the uh, hippocampus, the amygdala, and the prefrontal lobe cortex. Now, the amygdala and hippocampus are part of the reptilian brainstem, uh, and that is the basis part of us. It is the part that we share most with animals. This is um, uh, our, our, more of our animal self, all right? This is where uh, we operate out of our instincts, out of our nature, right? It's the part we share with virtually all other uh, sentient beings. And then there's the prefrontal lobe cortex. Now, this is the most human part of us, the most distinctly human part of us. Other animals have a prefrontal lobe cortex, but it's comparatively small, here is where we do all of our rational thinking, all of our deliberation and planning and things of that sort. But that whole frontal lobe is associated with the feelings of empathy and compassion and love and altruism and things of that sort. Okay? So that's how the brain is. Now, the, hippo, the, the amygdala and the hippocampus are like our 911 center in our brain. They're there to handle emergencies. When we come upon something in our environment that our brain interprets to be a threat, a message goes to the amygdala which then works in conjunction with the hippocampus, which sends out a ton of stress hormones, adrenaline and glucocorticoids, I think they're called, and all these other chemicals. And there's this chemical cocktail that just gets sent to your body that gets your heart pumping really fast, your blood racing, your pores open, your, your pupils are, are dilated, and, your, and all the blood flows to your muscles because it, your amygdala is telling you to either fight or flee. This is your fight or flee uh, co- complex, all right? You come upon, you're walking along in the field there, and all of a sudden you see something in the corner of your eye that, that's kind of coily on the ground. It could be, a, it could be a, a, a hose, but it could be a snake. You don't know. But what happens is your brain says, it might be a snake, danger, sends the message to the amygdala, which works in conjunction with the hippocampus, sends out this chemical cocktail, and boom, your heart's racing, and you're either going to jump and step on that thing, or you're going to run. Most likely, you're going to run. Now see, when, 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 when the, the brain gets this message and dials 911 emergency, your prefrontal lobe cortex almost completely shuts down and sometimes does shut down, which is why sometimes when trauma happens, you don't remember it later because the part of your brain that was receiving that information just shut down. Because in emergency situations, this isn't the time to reflect or to have feelings of compassion and kindness and altruism. No, in emergency situations, there's no time to think. If you sit there and ponder, hmm, could be a snake, could be a, a, a hose, well, you're going to get bit. There's no time to think. You just got to either fight or flee. So it dials up 911. The prefrontal lobe cortex almost completely shuts down, sometimes completely shuts down, which is why if you're in a debate, whether with your spouse or a friend or whoever, and you find yourself having your heart starting to race and you're getting kind of angry and you're starting to sweat and your people are dilating and you're starting to get tense or they're starting to get tense and they're dilating whatever just know that at that point thinking is not happening (laughs) the part of the brain that thinks is now has left the building the prefrontal lobe has left the building which is why continuing to talk is probably not going to be very productive either you want to or they want to jump on you and beat you up. If they're a Jesus person, they want to run away. Um, they, 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 but they don't want to be talking here. Their thinking's not going on. That's why you watch, you see it on Fox News or MSNBC or 
Maybe it happens in your own household a lot. Where people, they look like they're talking, but they're not talking. They're not really communicating. Now words, rather than, rather than being about conveying information and understanding one another and empathizing, oh yes, that's your point. Now words are being used to hurt the person or to shut them up or, or to get, get away because you're operating out of your amygdala. And those chemicals stay in your system for 18 minutes on average. It takes 18 minutes for the whole self to settle down and for you to become rational again. So if you find yourself in a 911 amygdala situation, in a debate, whether it's about politics or religion or the wallpaper, it doesn't matter. When you're in that situation, the best thing to do is say, time out, time out, let's come back in 19 minutes and talk again. <laughs> let's go cool down. Trouble is, is it takes a little bit of prefrontal lobe activity to even realize that you're in, in, in an, uh, uh, an amygdala situation, which is why it's often people just go on and on and on in this sort of thing. Okay, so that's how this brain operates. Now, the 911 center is really helpful in emergency situations. It's, it's there for a reason. But it's meant to be temporary, and it's meant to be short, short-term. This burst of chemicals that gets sent out, it's only supposed to be for a short period of time. Just like our 911 system here, you know, it's there to dial up when you think you're being robbed or someone's having a heart attack, but you're not supposed to call to check out, to say that you're out of coffee or to talk about your husband burnt the toast or, no, that would ruin the whole thing. It's meant to be for the real emergencies. And what we now know neurologically in science is that when people live in situations that are the brain interprets to be a 911 situation for a prolonged period of time. When you're anxious for a prolonged period of time or fearful for a prolonged period of time, the heart's racing, the pupils are dilated for a prolonged period of time, it damages you. Those stress hormones um, do a damage if they're, if, if they're experienced uh, over a long period of time. The very thing that helps you get such energy to either fight or flee ends up turning on your body and your brain when you live, on, live in it uh, for a prolonged period of time. It harms your body. It kills your immune system. It makes you more vulnerable to colds and infections and diseases and things like that. People who live in stressful situations find they will get sick more. But beyond that, it damages the brain. Physically damages the brain. Here's why. Um, we know that, that uh, among other things, here's why. That the... Um, Brain is always monitoring itself. Did you know this? It's always growing the parts of the brain that, that are important, that are active, that are, are uh, uh, being productive. And it's trimming off, pruning away all those neural nets that it thinks are no longer helpful. It's always doing that. Um, and so here's what happens. When a neural net is active, when you're thinking, you're problem solving, maybe learning a new skill, there's an enzyme that gets created in those neural nets. And that enzyme attracts a chemical in the brain called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. There you go. And it attaches to those cells. And it's, it's, it's referred to as a brain fertilizer because it grows the cells. It's like the cells are working. You're trying to learn Latin or you're trying to figure out a zudoku. What's zudoku? Zudoku? Is that what it's called? Whatever it's called. Whatever. Whatever. Crossword puzzle, figuring out a problem. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's, the, the cells are working really hard. You know, when you first learn a skill, it's kind of hard to do. So they, they call, hey, brain, help us. 
And so it creates this enzyme. And the brain says, sure, I'll help you. Here's some BDNF. And that fertilizer comes. And then those, those cells start to grow. You grow new, new dendrites and, dendrites and axions. And it grows. You see? And so it, it, it's, that's why as you learn a skill, it gets easier and easier and easier. Your brain is, is getting stronger. Unfortunately, the opposite is also true. That when you, there's inactive cells, you don't produce that enzyme. And not only do you not then get the brain fertilizer to grow the cells, but a different chemical uh, happens. It's kind of a cousin of BDNF. It's called proto-BDNF. And that actually is the, the pruning chemical. It kills those cells. It's like those cells are saying, uh, hey, we're over here and we're not doing anything. We're kind of extra baggage. Kill us now. So the brain says, sure. Gives you some proto-BDNF and it kills it off. So with the brain, it is absolutely true that if you don't use it, you lose it. It's true. You, which is why as you get older especially, because as you get older, you grow less and you prune more. Isn't it sad? Your brain is shrinking. Uh, and so it's all the more important to stay active, to be, to be learning a new skill, to be uh, staying interested in things, uh, trying new things, uh, playing Zudoku or something that exercises the brain. Really important, otherwise you're going to lose it. And there's a lot of studies that show that brain health is very dependent on staying active and staying interested in problem solving and, and, and things of that sort. So if you're in a 911 situation, you're always in a family situation or a job situation or it could be your belief in God, where you're under stress, where you're feeling oppressed, where you're suffocating, uh, where there's too many demands on you, where your heart is racing quite frequently, where you have a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. Those chemicals that get secreted by the amygdala and the hippocampus, they block that enzyme that attracts BDNF. Not only that, but when you're in a stress situation, what part of your brain is active and what part's not active? Right. The reptilian brainstem, that animal part, well, that, if there's any BDNF around, it's going to go there because that's the part that's active. And the prefrontal lobe cortex, which is the, 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 the highest part of your brain, the most human part of you, that part is not active at all. And so it's getting trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and trimmed, which is why stress causes brain damage. When people live in 911 situations for a prolonged period of times, they have less of a capacity to learn. They, 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 the, the brain diminishes its capacity to learn new things. Uh, the brain diminishes its capacity to think clearly uh, and to think quickly. If you deal with a person who's in a high-stress situation for whatever reason, um, over a prolonged period of time, you'll find that they, they can't make decisions. They, they, they just aren't clear. There's a fog that's there. Um, it decreases our ability to have empathy and compassion and altruism. It decreases our ability to control our emotions and our impulses. That's a prefrontal lobe cortex thing. Because all of these things aren't necessary when you're, when, you're, when you're running from a snake, right? In an emergency situation, these things aren't necessary. So if you prolong them, well, the brain just interprets that, that the prefrontal lobe cortex is not of much value anymore. So you're growing your animal reptilian brainstem, but your prefrontal lobe cortex is getting damaged. And then your sense of well-being gets lowered, and you have a higher sense of alienation. And all of this intensifies self-centeredness. Because in an emergency situation, who are you thinking about? You. Right? I want to survive. It, it, the focus is on you. So people who come out of, and I can say this from experience, having grown up in a family that was a 911 thing all the time, dishes flying all the time, fights breaking out, it's threatening stepmother, and then a damaging view of God on top of the whole thing. There's a 911, you know, I, I was always having those chemicals being sent out. And I grew up, when I look back on it now, I was a survivor. That's what you do. You survive. And it's not your fault. It's a, your brain's wired this way. You've got to look out for number one. So you, you're a survivor. And I, I know how to turn off my emotions on a dime because it's how I survived. 
But see, it, it, it's damaging. Now, the good news is that the brain, they have this thing called the plasticity of the brain. The brain can mold itself in new ways, and there can be healing that can come about. And uh, uh, yeah, so just because you've been in that situation doesn't mean you have to stay in that situation. And the brain can change and praise God. When you come in contact with the love of God, there can be incredible, beautiful healing that can take place. All right? So the, the, don't think that you're fated to have this brain damage. But here's the thing. What that tells us is this. Oh, for one thing, and this isn't the point of this message, but uh, we are in a city, our culture is increasingly, for a variety of reasons, uh, a stress-inducing culture. In fact, the National Institute for, of Mental Health um, said that adults in America, 28.8% of all adults in America will have an anxiety disorder at some point in their adult life. Where anxiety controls you. It damages your, your work environment, your family, or whatever. They have a, a bar set for this. 28.8. And that's up fourfold in the last 20 years. And all the indications are that for a variety of reasons, our culture is becoming more stressful. People are working too much to chase the American dream. Parents are putting too much stress on themselves, thinking they got to give their kids every opportunity on the planet. Uh, we're too available to other people with our iPods and our iPhones and all that, being able to have someone call you at any time. In fact, that itself causes stress. And they've done studies on this. When you're walking along, you're very peaceful. All of a sudden, that phone goes off. What happens? You go, oh, there's a jar there. Boom! Your amygdala just sent something out. That wasn't a big, big thing, but over time, that does damage. And so as kingdom people who are called to manifest the peaceable kingdom, all right, the tranquility of God, uh, whatever it takes, folks, opt out of the rat race. Opt out of the rat race. Whatever it takes. Um, the job isn't worth it. And you don't owe your kids every opportunity. No, you don't. Um, uh, simplify, 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 simplify. We say it all the time around here. Because that stress is not of God. That, that, that kills, steals, and destroys your prefrontal lobe cortex. It's causing you brain damage. But here's the, the really interesting thing. Uh, Jensen gives a lot of evidence, uh, a lot of research showing that it's not just our environment that causes stress on us, it is also, and maybe even more so, what takes place between our ears. Our imagination, what we believe, what our faith is. That's how we interpret the world. Your brain can cause stress on itself by what you believe. And the most important fact about what you believe has to do with your picture of God. And so Jennings presents all this research showing that when you've got a twilight zone deity, it stresses you continually. When you've got a, a, a model of God that is fear-based, motivated by fear, love me or else you die eternally. When you, to the degree that you've got a model of God that's controlling, that's oppressive, that, that takes away your personhood, to that degree, you're going to be having stress hormones all the time. Uh, you're going to be damaging your prefrontal cortex. You're going to be uh, undermining your capacity to have empathy and to think clearly and to have compassion and to have altruism. You're going to be undermining your sense of well-being, and it's going to incline you to be more self-centered because you're going to be surviving. How could a guy choose to say this is good, that his daughter, his newborn daughter is going to hell? Um, Faded from, from, from eternity past? Well, he's a survivor. He's, he's operating out of his 911 center. And when we live in that, it damages us. Literally, physically, neurologically, an ugly picture of God causes brain damage. But the opposite is also true. Jennings presents this research that even spending time, 15 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day meditating on a beautiful portrait of God, 
brings about a healing to the prefrontal lobe cortex. 15 minutes a day. Having a love-based model of God that empowers you to be human, to be free, to make choices. Not controlling. That brings healing to the brain. It brings a balance between the prefrontal lobe cortex and the amygdala and hippocampus. It creates a sense of well-being. Uh, and, and it augments, it grows, it grows. Just meditating on God grows uh, the, the, the prefrontal lobe cortex and therefore grows your capacity of empathy and altruism and love and all the rest. Which brings home the point that we've always taught here that everything but everything hangs upon us believing that God is as beautiful as he reveals himself to be in Jesus Christ. To trust that to the core of our being and to envision that. Amen. To meditate on it. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. Read it. 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, He says it's as we behold the beauty of God that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's as the difference between believers and non-believers isn't first and foremost about what we do. It's about what we imagine. We have, Paul says, through the Spirit, an ability to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's as we behold that beauty that we're transformed into that beauty from one degree of glory to another. And now we've got neurological evidence for it. In fact, if you think about it, really, I, I think this research proves, for those of you who still doubt, this proves that the beautiful God is the true God. Because if the ugly God was the true God, the controlling fear-based model, then that, you'd have to accept that you're wired, your brain is wired to be damaged by believing the truth. Believing the truth is not good for you. Believing the truth damages you. If what is true is that God is this all-controlling uh, uh, fear-based God. Think about that. Uh, now, I suppose if God is that, this kind of demented Anthony, he would wire your brain so you're destroyed by knowing the truth, I guess. If but it seems to me that the very fact that we're, our brain is wired to be healthy when we're contemplating the beauty of God, the, the, the empowering God, the, the self-sacrificial God, that, that to me is proof that that is the true God. We're wired to believe that. We're healthy to the degree that we believe that. But if neurology doesn't float your boat, let's try the Bible. Here's another proof. It says in 1 John 4, God is love. And then John says in 1 John 3.16, love is defined by looking at the cross. Here's what you know what love is. Uh, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Do the math. God is love. Love looks like the cross. God looks like the cross. God is a God whose very nature, his very essence, he's the eternal being. God is love. He doesn't just do it. This is who he is. He is Calvary-like love, cross-like love, self-sacrificial love. God in his very essence from all eternity is the kind of God who would rather give his life for enemies rather than crush his enemies. He's the God who prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the kind of God he is. It would be against God's nature to act like this demented Anthony. It would contradict his very being to be anything other than perfect self-sacrificial love. And that kind of love, John says, listen to this now, John says, eight verses later, or ten verses later, he says, that love drives out fear. There is no fear in love. Everyone say it. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out all fear. Not just some fear or little fear, it drives out all fear. To the degree that your love is perfect, there's no fear. So folks, when it comes to... God, if there's any part of you that's worried about him being this God who can just arbitrarily send you to hell and maybe he's going to damn you because of this thing or that thing or you weren't thinking positive thoughts about him or whatever, take it on God's authority that that is not of God. That causes you brain damage. Anything that kills, steals, and destroys your prefrontal lobe cortex is not of God. God is the 
God who comes to give abundant life. He heals the prefrontal lobe cortex. He augments it. He's the kind of God whose very nature, if you just look at him, he heals your brain. Just look at him and he heals at your brain. And so to the degree that there's any fear, reverence, for sure, reverence, uh, we're, we're to revere God, revere. There's an awesomeness, an absolute awesomeness, a stunning, a silencing awesomeness to God when you contemplate his, the, the universe, the power that holds everything into existence. Yes, that should humble us, bring us to our knees. But that's not fear. Fear is about this personal punishment. And, and, and the cross, if it means anything, it means that God's not like that. God, so to the degree that you have any fear, let me ask this question. I'll end with this. What is it that brings fear into your life? Right? Just be honest. Holy Spirit helps us to assess our lives honestly. What causes fear? What brings anxiety? What, is there a constant state of nervousness in your life? Anxiety, fear. And ask God for wisdom. What is causing that? What is causing that? And maybe something in your environment, your work, your family, or maybe something between your ears. Maybe both. Ask God for wisdom about this and then commit to this. Know that that is causing you brain damage and therefore that is not of God. Ask God for wisdom about what you're to do to get rid of that or to fix that or to solve that or to let go of that, whatever it is. Let it go. And for some folks listening to this message, whether in this auditorium or on podcast, the main stressor of your life is your picture of God. And just know that to the degree that you have a picture of God that is sub-Christ-like, that's less beautiful than the God revealed on Calvary, to that degree, it's damaging the most important part of your brain. You're frying the cells around your prefrontal lobe cortex, and that is not of God. To the degree that there's any fear that drives you, that motivates you, it just means your picture of God is not accurate. Your love has not been made perfect. Your, your picture of God is not loving enough. And ask God to help you see the beauty of the true God. And when you see the beauty of the true God, it does not kill brain cells. It restores them. It makes for a healthy brain, which leads to a healthy life. If we are ever going to be the people of God who put on love, as Paul tells us to in Colossians 3.13, it will only be because we've first put on a true picture of God, the God of love. And it can't be too beautiful. It can't be. You can't out-beautify God. If it feels too good to be true, that just means you're heading in the right direction. Keep thinking those thoughts. The part of discipleship that, discipleship that it requires of us is a commitment to spend time doing this. And so I want to end by challenge you, challenging us to spend time, 15 minutes a day minimum, just contemplating the true God, thinking about his love, envisioning, Calvary. ask the Holy Spirit to help, help, help make this real. Uh, God gave us our imagination for this purpose. Faith is about seeing as a substantial reality the things that are invisible. So see Jesus Christ as a substantial reality. However you remember things, however you anticipate things in your brain, well, do the same thing with Jesus. However you do that. We all do it differently. But, but, but see Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Let him say to you what he's already said to you in Scripture. Just behold his beauty, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. And that, that itself brings healing to the mind which then brings healing to the life, which frees us from self-centeredness, frees us from living out of our reptilian brainstem, frees us to be uh, the people of God that he's called us to be, who put on love and therefore put on display the beautiful character of Abba, Father. Amen.
All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, could I ask the prayer teams to come up here? And if you have any need whatsoever that you could uh, use prayer for, please come up here and pray with these folks. They really want to minister to you, and there's no reason for you to carry that burden out uh, on your own. Would you stand? I'll leave us with this commission. As a people of God, will we commit to be a people who gaze upon the beauty of our Lord? That's all he asks. Gaze upon his beauty. Uh, be a people who commit to purging out of our minds everything that's inconsistent with the beauty of God. Be a people who commit to just spending time uh, beholding his love, receiving his love. And be a people who commit to, as we internalize this, to putting it on in our life, putting it on our mind, putting it on our families, putting it on our neighborhoods, putting it on our society, to every person, to every time, no ifs, ands, and buts, to love them as Jesus Christ has loved us. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. And God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and love on the world. Greetings, beloved people of God. Welcome to the pastor's outtakes or going deeper, whatever you want to call them. Uh, by the way, I have kids, my grandkids over here this weekend. So if you hear some grandkids uh, acting in the background, that's my beloved grandkids. Um, two things I didn't have a chance to share that I would have liked to have shared in the message this week. One has to do, the first thing has to do with um, kind of an illustration of this demented Anthony model of God that we uh, talked about with the Twilight Zone. Um, it comes out of the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky's marvelous novel, which I encourage all of you to read. It's just an incredible novel. It's got uh, one of the greatest religious dialogues in all of literature uh, in, in it. And it takes place between two brothers, Ivan and Alyosha. Ivan is a skeptic, uh, and Alyosha is an Orthodox priest. And um, they're debating the existence of God. Um, and I'm actually told that Dostoevsky uh, collected stories for three decades in the 19th century that he found in various newspapers about actual things that had happened to children, atrocious things, and he puts them into the mouth of Ivan uh, in this dialogue. And so Ivan uh, recounts some absolutely unthinkable, terrible things that happened to children, and he's putting them out there for Alyosha, uh, to explain. If you believe in God, why would God allow these things or make him part of his plan? One of the, one of the episodes he recounts, one of the most horrendous episodes, it has to do with a, uh, a little surf boy in the 19th century who had accidentally hit uh, a master's dog. One of the aristocrats uh, hit, hit, hit one of their hunting dogs with a rock while he was playing accidentally. He didn't really harm the dog, but the master was deeply offended by this. So he locks the boy up at night, and in the morning he releases him, uh, only then does the boy find out, and then does his mother find out, because his mother was made to watch, that the boy is now going to be the prey of the hunting dog. He is the hunt. And these dogs proceed to hunt him down and rip him to shreds in front of his mother. In front of his mother. And um, Ivan says, what kind of a god uh, allows this, uh, or, or even ordains it, makes it part of his plan? And Alyosha, responding like a typical theist, uh, says, uh, brother, you have to accept that uh, these things are all a mysterious part of a higher harmony. That's the word he uses. There's a higher harmony. Somehow these are all synthesized together like a magnificent mosaic, uh, which has to have light streaks and dark streaks, but, but uh, uh, you have to understand that the dark streaks somehow blend in with the light streaks to make it a, a beautiful portrait. It actually is a classical theodicy. It goes back to St. Augustine. Actually, before him, the Neoplatonists used it. Um, and the idea here is that uh, all the evil events in history somehow glorify God, portray God as put on display some attribute of his, um, and it's part of a higher harmony. And Ivan says that 
if the price of this higher harmony is uh, one child suffering like this surf boy in uh, unthinkable pain and the terror of this mother, then he has a moral obligation to reject it. He says, I'll return the ticket. And I've often wondered if God would be more impressed with an Eliosha who obediently says, oh, it's good, even though he's wired to see it as evil, uh, or an Ivan who says, um, I have to, in solidarity, out of love for that little boy, in solidarity with that little boy, I have to reject the ticket. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good question. But it does illustrate this, this uh, point that, that, I mean, picture God painting a portrait, uh, you know, and, and all the events of history are this, this portrait. And then, then God, then he paints into a corner of this portrait a little boy, eight-year-old boy, being ripped to shreds by dogs. And then he turns to you and says, do you agree that the painting is all the more beautiful and that I'm all the more glorious for having painted this, this scene into the painting? What would you do? Uh, do you say, yes, oh, yeah, you, you, it's, 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 it's nifty, it's swell, it's, it's great. Uh, or do you feel a moral obligation to say, that's terrible, that's I, I think if I were portray, presented with a scenario like that after death to find myself in a situation where there's a painter painting that picture and says to me, do you agree that this is good? Um, I feel a, an, um, I would see this as a, as a test that God would want me to say, no, that's not good. No, that's that's evil. I, that If that contributes to the beauty of the whole, it's not worth it. That is something that is altogether evil. As I understand the God of Scripture, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, there's no sense in which that is good. He'll bring good out of it, but he hates it. In every sense of the word, he hates it. He wills, wishes it did not happen. He'll, he'll work to bring good out of it, but that doesn't mean he would will it for, for that purpose. Um, second thing I want to uh, just go a little deeper with is um, it, it, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 really in a magnificent way confirms the point I was making with this whole sermon. And we just didn't have time to go into it uh, more deeply, but it, it's a profound passage where Paul, he's talking about uh, that unbelievers have a veil over their mind that keeps them from seeing the glory of God. But then he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 16, when anyone turns to the Lord, that veil, the veil that's over the mind, is taken away. And it's the Spirit who takes it away. So he says where the Spirit is, there's freedom. He's talking about a freedom to see something that uh, non-believers can't see. And then he says, and we all with unveiled faces uh, behold the Lord's glory and are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And then a little bit later on, he talks about how the, if, if our gospel is veiled in, in chapter 4, verse 4. And remember, in the original, there aren't these chapter divisions or verse divisions. So this is just three verses later. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are blinded by the God of this age. But to us who have been freed... He says, uh, God says, let the light shine in the darkness. So he's made the light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in, in the uh, face of Jesus Christ. And so here Paul is saying that uh, we in our mind, and he's referring to the part of our mind that we call our imagination, where we can entertain images. Um, the part we remember with, the part we anticipate with, the part we really just think with. Uh, we are able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold that glory, we're transformed into that glory from, uh, from one degree of glory to another. And so it's, it's what we see in our mind that uh, transforms us. All of that is, is to say how important it is that we spend time, make time, um, to just contemplate the Lord's glory, behold His glory, envision His glory as concretely as possible. 
Um, and now, as I mentioned in the, in the sermon, uh, we've got neurological proof of this, uh, that, that your view of God, when you contemplate it seriously and vividly, it shapes your brain. It, it, it grows parts of your, the, 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 it augments the prefrontal lobe cortex. Uh, it, it makes you more Christ-like. It pushes you in the direction of empathy and compassion and altruism and, and love. And so I encourage you, strongly encourage you, as a foundational discipline of the Christian life to make time every day to just uh, sit with Jesus. Go on a mountaintop or in a field or wherever you want to go. Um, sometimes he'll take you back into a memory. Sometimes he'll, he'll just be sitting in a field or a childhood place or wherever. But hear all the things he said to you in Scripture. But now he says it to you with your name on it. He's, he says it to you while he's looking into your eyes. He says it while he's embracing you. And just drink deeply from that. Your, your soul was made for that love. And that is what transforms us. That's, we'll never put on love, uh, the kind of love that we're called to live in. We'll never activate that, uh, except insofar as we are seeing it modeled towards us. Uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. You first have to get Christ loving you and, and that love that, that led him to give his life for you, and then you can begin to live it towards others. All right? God bless you. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Bye-bye.